And I am going to invite Dave Galley to come forward and read from the Gospel of Mark to us this morning. <laughs> wow, you have, a, you have a following, Dave. All right, then. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, I'm reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, uh, verses 2 through 13. I'll give you a minute to open up to that if you'd like to. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they, all, they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. A voice came from the, from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dave. Thanks. Don't forget that. So, I don't know if you realize it or not, but with today's reading, we enter the second half of Mark's gospel. We are at a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Jesus' coming out party is over. Demonstrations of power, teachings of authority, signs and wonders have all culminated with the definitive announcement of Jesus' identity, that he is the Christ. The rest of the ministry, his ministry from this point on, will take place around the area of Jerusalem. Mark does this very deliberately because the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem is not only a journey across physical geography, it's a journey leading to a final confrontation, a long-predicted conclusion but a nonetheless shocking finale at the cross. We began this second half of the journey on Ash Wednesday, if you were able to be with us. This, on Ash Wednesday, we began this journey that's been known for centuries in the church as the season of Lent, a time for preparing our hearts to understand the gracious gift of unconditional forgiveness and eternal security that Jesus has given us. We go on this road with Jesus, marked with suffering and loss, because as we heard on Ash Wednesday, just a chapter before in the Gospel of Mark, he's called us to follow him. And in order to prepare any who would follow him, Jesus began to openly speak to us about the cost of what lies ahead. Jesus does this to force those of us who've been following him for the wrong reasons, based on his reputation as a teacher, a healer, or an exorcist, to decide once and for all if the cost of following him is truly worth it. The cost 
As Jesus told us on Ash Wednesday, to become one of his disciples is to be willing to deny yourself, to take up your own cross and follow him wherever he may lead. In the immediate aftermath of this invitation and challenge, Jesus concludes, and it starts chapter 9. It's the verse right before what we heard Dave read, if you have your Bible open. Jesus concludes by promising his disciples, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God coming in power. In other words, what Jesus is saying, some of them will be given a hint of this glory of where this is all heading before everything comes to pass. That hint, that sneak peek of what lies ahead, that glimpse of an even greater glory yet to come is what Dave just read, what we just experienced together with Peter, James, and John. It is an event that's recorded in the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, and alluded to in John. It's an event known as the Transfiguration. There's so much that's going on in this event And I hope you have your Bibles open. If you haven't, open them back up to Mark chapter nine because you're gonna need to. We need to, there's so much going on here. We need to briefly but carefully take all this in. To begin with, Mark's description of the high mountain that Peter, James, John, and Jesus go to and the glory that appears on that high mountain should, if you know your Bible at all, even just a little bit, it should call to mind another dazzling light show on a mountaintop. And what I'm referring to if you're not catching my drift, is the time when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and beheld the glory of the Lord. Back in the book of Exodus, Moses detailed how the clouds covered the mountain of the Lord for six days before Yahweh's glory was revealed to him and the witnesses on the seventh day. If you have those Bibles open, you might notice something. Notice how Mark intentionally lets us know that all this went down for Peter, James, and John on the day after six. After six days, this happens. Mark wants us to understand that what happens here is Jesus is being revealed in the tradition of Moses as the one who was foretold by Moses to be greater than Moses, as the one who is leading the new and the final exodus of God's people through the wilderness of this present age. But as you heard Dave read, it's not only Moses whom Jesus is revealed to be talking with, it's also Elijah. Moses is the key figure in the revelation of God's covenant, his promise to claim and identify all creation according to the law. Elijah is perhaps the second greatest figure in the Old Testament. He's the prophet of prophets, the herald of God's covenant, his promise to telling us of the one who will come to fulfill the law and bring the restoration of all things by grace. Did you catch how Mark described what happens? Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. I love that, by the way. You ever bleat, really bleat something? Mark wants you to know, good luck. You'll never be as bright as Jesus was that day. And beyond laundry or the idea of bleaching clothes aside, the beaming radiance of Christ's appearance here that Mark describes to us, it's intended to call to mind the vision of another prophet, a prophet named Daniel. And if you don't know what I'm speaking of, let me read to you from the words of Daniel as Daniel describes a vision that God gives him. As I looked, thrones were set in place. And Daniel describes, the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. Mark wants us to understand Jesus is not only the new Moses, 
He's also the one whose glory and grace is anticipated by Elijah and described by Daniel as the Ancient of Days, the one in whom all God's covenant promises are fulfilled, the one through whom the restoration of all things occurs. So one way to appreciate what's happening here is Jesus is reaffirming for the disciples what the Holy Spirit revealed to people to Peter just a chapter before, which we looked at on Ash Wednesday. Who is Jesus? You are the Christ. Jesus is reaffirming that for Peter, James, and John on the mountain. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is greater than either Moses or Elijah. Jesus is the one the entirety of the Old Testament bears witness to, the one in whom the law and the prophets are fulfilled. But this is only scratching the surface. This is only scratching the surface of this amazing event, which, again, I love. Mark describes simply this way. There he was transfigured before them. Like this kind of thing happens every day. He was transfigured. And, And again, with that caution, before Peter, James, and John, Jesus is not transformed. Pay attention. He's transfigured. Transfiguration does not mean the same thing as transformation. Transformation implies a remaking of the nature of a person or an object. Transfiguration implies the revelation of the true nature of something. Let me say that again. Transformation is is this idea of remaking the nature of a person or an object, where transfiguration implies the revelation of the true nature of something. In other words, Jesus is not transformed on the mountain that day with the disciples. He doesn't go up to the mountain like some sort of caterpillar, wrap himself up in a cocoon, and then emerge as a glorious butterfly full of light and beauty. The point, the difference, is it's not as though something was added to Jesus that day on the mountain, which he did not already possess. No, to say that Jesus was transfigured is to say the veil had been momentarily lifted and we and the disciples get to see what's behind that veil, to see Jesus for who he truly is. If this is still difficult to make this more accessible for us, this idea of transfiguration, have you ever, have you ever seen the face of a person transfigured with joy because of a gift or an unexpected event? It's as if you're peering into their very soul through the layers of tears and laughter, mud all over their face or cake splattered on them. You see them for who they truly are on the inside. Or let's take another example. Think of a time when you perceived someone a certain way from the outside. Perhaps you looked at that person from afar and you found them to be incredibly beautiful or they had it so together. And then you happen to catch that person unaware. You catch that person by surprise when they believe no one else is looking and you see them in a fit of anger or frustration and in the transfiguration of that moment, you are shocked, maybe even disillusioned to see how that person really is on the inside. When Jesus is transfigured, Jesus stands revealed. The glory that rightly belongs to him as God's one and only son is on display before our very eyes. This is the same glory that Jesus already possessed, but which he had veiled with human flesh in the incarnation. Where Moses and Elijah reflected and pointed to the glory of God, Jesus is the glory of God in human form. 
What is revealed here is Jesus as he truly is. What the writer, the writer to the letter to the Hebrews will say, the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. To draw this home, I don't, know if, I don't know if it's sinking in. I want to really put you where Peter, James, and John are right now. And, and I want to take you back and go back all the way to the summer. Do you remember when we were in the book of Leviticus? Sort of to connect the dots here. Do you remember when we looked at Leviticus together? Do you remember in Leviticus when we looked at the Day of Atonement? That day in which the high priest mediated the forgiveness of all the sins of the people. That day in which the high priest would go into that place in the temple that they, they were only going in once a year. The Holy of Holies. That day in which the glory of the Lord, the raw, unfiltered presence of God filled the temple. And that's why the priest normally had a rope around them so that if they died, they could get pulled out. Smoke mediated this, that this, that this incredible event that took place, God's glory, his Shekinah glory filling the temple. And you'll remember that the whole reason for this being done so carefully, so securely, was because long back, before the temple was even created, back to that mountaintop with Moses and God, Moses got so caught up in, in God and so caught up in the experience of being with and following God. You remember Moses saying, Lord, show me your glory. Give it to me. Give me all you got, Lord. And God, you'll remember, told Moses, no, 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 no. No one can see my face and live. No one can see me and live. No one can see my face and live, God once told Moses. And yet here, unlike anyone else who went to the top of a mountain to see God's glory before, Peter, James, and John live to tell the story. The three of them are in the presence of God and they do not die. Beloved, what's being witnessed here is the infinite distance between divine perfection and human brokenness. What's being, what we're experiencing here, what's being described to us is the stark contrast between what we perceive, what we call reality, what we think is truth, and having reality and truth right in front of you in its purest and most unadulterated expression. The irony is not lost on me that last week, based upon the scriptures, we were talking about sight. Talk about a sight. Talk about having your eyes opened. It's this vision, this gap, that leaves Peter with his mouth open. Can you picture it? Peter, with his mouth open, stuttering and stammering something about putting up some tents. It says shelter in, your, in, in our Bibles, but the literal word that Peter uses is tabernacles. You see, what Peter's talking about is he's stuttering and he's stammering as he's trying to get the words out, is he's talking about creating something, a place to mediate the gap between divinity and humanity. Peter's statement here is actually better understood as a question. Is it really a good idea for us to be here right now? What Peter's getting at is we need to build something. We need to set up some rituals. We need to protect ourselves from the glory of God's presence. After all, Peter's been raised to believe that when you're in the raw, unfiltered presence of God, either you die or you're dead already. Some people have argued that Peter is even further misunderstanding what's happening here, that Peter, not knowing the big picture, Peter sees the transfiguration of Jesus as the new Moses. He makes that connection. He sees this is the new Exodus and thinks this is it. This is the beginning of the end. 
The end of all things, the making of everything new, it's here. It's happened. It's now. And I, I, I don't know about you. I mean, there's a, a reverence in this text, absolutely. But there's a lot of comedy here. I really hope you see that. Because I love what in this moment Mark shares as a brief aside. It's in parentheses if your Bibles are open. You know, Peter says this, we should build shelters. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. That's a delicate way of saying Peter didn't know what he was talking about. (laughs) And if Mark's gospel is in fact informed by Peter, Peter's guiding Mark in terms of what's writing, I just, it makes me laugh to think that as Peter's describing it to Mark, he's like, be sure to put in there, I didn't know what I was talking about. (laughs) Peter, James, and John trudged up that mountain with Jesus hoping to get a better view of things. We get away. We get away and climb mountains or go to high places for the same reason. These disciples were perhaps looking for a better view of the world, and they sure got one. Their view of the world and of themselves changed that day. Their view of things was transformed when Jesus was transfigured. They caught the vision. They heard a voice. Time froze as the veil of our reality was peeled back and they got a glimpse of eternity, of Jesus, who Jesus really is, God in the flesh. And yet at the same time, if you can track with me, from our temporal vantage point, because we, we know what we see, from our temporal vantage point, the disciples also received in that moment a vision of the future, of whom Jesus will become, the glorified, resurrected Jesus, his face shining like the sun, And I think that Jesus does this for them and for us to prepare us for the difficult days that lie ahead when Jesus' humiliation reaches its depths, when he's not so dazzlingly bright that we could never bleach anything to, to match it, but when he will be crimson red, black and blue, bruised, to prepare us when Jesus will hang helplessly upon a cross, not with Moses on one side and Elijah on the other, to prepare us for that moment when God will appear to have forsaken him rather than calling him beloved. With them, we get to perceive in this revelation of Jesus what God is really up to. The ultimate goal of the cross for Jesus and for those who follow him in the way of the cross. Bridging the law and the prophets. Making the world the way it should be. The world the way God promised the world will be. Renewed reconciled and restored eventually. In his ignorance and lack of sight, Peter wants to build three tabernacles. But if your Bibles are open, notice what happens after Peter says this. A cloud appears and shelters the disciples from the unveiled presence of Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. Uh, Peter, while you build uh, some tabernacles, watch this. And then again, more comedy from my standpoint This happens, and then Mark tells us, when the three of them look around, everyone's gone except for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the tabernacle. 
Because Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the shelter. Jesus is the bridge, the way into this reality, this perfection, this abundant life, this eternal kingdom that both Elijah and Moses could only point to but never deliver. Beloved, you ought to hear words that Jesus says elsewhere in this moment, on this mountain, when he's transfigured. Because Jesus elsewhere will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But here, Peter, James, and John don't just hear those words. They literally experience that reality. And our Father affirms the truth of all that we've talked about. As Mark describes, once again in this moment, he declares his love, his bond with his Son. Just like he did, do you remember? When Jesus started on his adventure while being baptized in the Jordan River. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan at the beginning of Mark's gospel, the Spirit filled him so Jesus could begin teaching and healing. And now the Father surrounds Jesus with his presence to reinforce Jesus for the greater and more challenging road that lies ahead for him, the way of the cross. As Peter, James, and John are coming down the mountain with Jesus, it's clear they still cannot grasp fully what just happened. I mean, this is pretty obvious just from Peter's field of dreams moment. You know, Lord, if we build it, three tabernacles, they will come. It's not surprising that Jesus instructs them to keep what they've seen to themselves until, as he puts it, after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Again, it's time for more comedy because Jesus, on the one hand, knows that this will make more sense to them what they've just experienced after the resurrection. But if you pay attention to what Mark tells us, his instructions create even more confusion for them. As Mark tells us that while they kept their mouths closed about what they saw, now they were talking nonstop about what rising from the dead meant. Rising from the dead? What's he talking about? That's why at the end of our reading, just to close this out, they start asking Jesus about the order of things. They're kind of confused. And so they say, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? You see, having just seen Elijah on the mountain, the disciples are trying to square this with what they've been taught. They're trying to square what they've been taught with what they've just seen. Did they miss something? If Jesus is the Messiah, what happened to Elijah? And you heard, you have it right there in response, Jesus infers that Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist. And what happened to John, remember John met a gruesome death at the hands of King Herod, will soon happen to Jesus as well. That's the passage. And there's so much more we could talk about. But where I want to focus for the remainder of our time, what I want to key in on today is the command, the appeal that's explicitly given in this encounter. It's so subtle in the midst of all this other stuff, you probably might have missed it. Did you notice it? I hope you did because it's not often in the Bible that God speaks to us so directly. But do you notice that once Jesus' person and mission are vindicated once again by the Father, he says, this is my son whom I love. God adds a word of simple but direct instruction. Do you see it there? Three words. Listen to him. And the, again, the irony is not lost on me that by the scriptures, God has us focusing on our eyes last week and now he moves to our ears. Listen to him. Listen to my beloved son. Listen to Jesus. It's a simple command. Listen. But we all know there is a dramatic difference between hearing and listening. We're, we are all about hearing. We tell people that all the time. I hear you. I heard you. 
but are you listening to me? Well, I heard you. No, but are you listening to me? Look, I, I hear you, okay? Shut up. No, no, but are you listening to me? Listen to him. We're all hearing this sermon, but not all of us are listening to it. Even those of us who are trying to listen to it have missed parts, maybe even whole sections of what has been said. And this could be due to a sudden noise here or there, a cough, a sneeze, a murmur, a creak, a cell phone. Or we've missed part of what's being said because of a running conversation in our heads that we often struggle to put on pause. Please tell me I'm not the only person who suffers from this problem. (laughs) Think about this. Think about this. Think about how challenging it's been to listen to this sermon, to focus our attention in what I would argue is a pretty ideal environment. I mean, we're in a contained space. If I stop talking, notice. Silence. And the acoustics are good. We've got, we're more mic'd up. Think about how difficult, how challenging it is to listen to this sermon in what's an ideal environment. And then contrast that with the environment in which we often are hearing things. Constant and competing sounds, multiple conversations at the same time, different volume levels, phones going off, TVs being on, radio, music. And all of a sudden, listen to him doesn't seem that simple anymore. Beloved, if we're going to do more than just hear what's going on around us, if we're truly going to listen to Jesus, what he has to say, what he is saying, we have to carve out specific, filtered, and protected space and time. And that's why we encourage many, those in the faith to participate in some form of a Bible study. It's not just going for the knowledge that you get from being in the Bible study. It's about creating that, carving out that specific, intentional, protected time where you allow God to speak. That's why we preach sermons. We have sermons on Sunday morning, figuring if every other day throughout the week, if you're not in the Word, at least for this period of time, you're hearing God speak through the sermon. And let me just say a brief word on this because I've made an assumption and I, I, I want to just say it directly. One of the reasons here at Grace, since I've come, why we preach through books of the Bible rather than topical or jumping around is because from, from, for myself, let alone for you, I find most people are not in the Bible on a regular basis. They don't make time for it. They don't have time for it, whatever you want to say, and many of them don't know how to. So part of preaching through books of the Bible in the time I've been here is to increase the biblical literacy of our community. Some of you may be fine, but others of you, this may be all you get. But the assumption that I've made, and, and part of what I don't know if I've ever said to you is, I don't look at each sermon as being individual. When we're going through the Gospel of Mark, each sermon is a conversation that builds upon the next. And some of you can't be here every Sunday. You may be traveling, you might be sick, you may just not feel like getting out of bed. But this Sunday time, whether you're here or not, is intentional carved out space so that you can listen to what Jesus is saying. So my point is, why do we have podcasts? Why do we have CDs? Why do we have video? Not so you don't come, but so that if you miss, you can still be a part of the conversation. I operate under the assumption that if you're not here, you're listening. Not to me, but hopefully... God's speaking through the sermon that's preached. If you're not doing that, you're missing an intentional carved out space for that purpose. And something else we've just added here at Grace um, that we haven't shared with everybody in the community because we wanted to get our legs under us is in the mornings, we're gathering as a staff 
here, right here, right here, right before the foot of the cross at 8.30 in the morning. And I know you're going to think I'm a big baby, but that is really hard for me. 8.30 in the morning is tough. And we are, we just open up our Bibles. We have a scripture. We're going through the gospel of Matthew and we rotate around and we have, we record it, a 10 to 12 minute devotional where we read the scripture and then someone shares what do they hear God saying in the midst of that? How are they, how is God encountering them? What are they, how are they hearing Jesus speak through that? And we're recording it. It's on our website, our webpage. It's on, you can subscribe to it on iTunes. You can have filtered specific time in joining in that with us. And by the way, if you're, if you're ever around at 8.30, Monday through Thursday, come on in. Everybody's welcome. But that's another way of us making that specific time. You have to do that. That specific, filtered, protected space and time. But it's more than that. More than just sermons, Bible studies, or a devotional like I'm talking about. You also, we also have to be intentional and specific and focused in paying attention and processing what we receive. When we gather for that daily devotional, we read scripture out loud. You'll hear us talk about what we understand going on. But we spend time, sometimes beyond the recording, really processing what is Jesus trying to say. And in a Bible study, that's the point of a Bible study. That's why there's questions in a Bible study. It's not just about giving you information, but helping you to process that information, that word from God. Our Lenten series that's coming up that starts this Wednesday is all about how to develop this conversational language with God because it's not just about hearing, it's about listening. And how do we know how to listen? How do we know it's God versus myself or something else? The Kairos card, in its simplest form, this is carving out for us each and every week. I keep it in my car on my dashboard. An intentional and specific focus so that in the midst of all the things that are going on, as God is speaking, I ask myself two simple questions. Rather than just hear, I listen by saying, what is God saying to me? And what is he telling me to do about it? It's a hook. Beloved, listen to Jesus, God says. Listen to him. The first obstacle is all the chaos and the noise that surround us. The first step is intentional focus. But what I want to suggest, with all that I've just given you, I think the most challenging thing about listening to Jesus is being honest, we don't always want to hear what he has to say. And there are several examples I could mention. I could mention how Jesus talks to us and tells us to listen to him about how we treat our money and our resources. I could bring up how Jesus, what Jesus has to say about neighbors and enemies, but let's not go there. Let's just focus on the latest, the most profound words Jesus has just spoken to us recently, as recently as this past Ash Wednesday. Let's try to listen to something Jesus will repeat to his disciples, to us, for the next few weeks, words that really shape our pilgrimage through Lent. And if you weren't here on Ash Wednesday, here they are, Jesus speaking, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus is talking about what we call the cost of discipleship. He's talking about walking in the shadow of the cross. And it's something hard to hear because we really don't want to listen to it. Because it's frightening if you really let it sink in. What this is all about, this journey, God suffers. God suffers. Jesus dies. And he calls us to follow him in this. Listen to that. Listen to that. God suffers. Jesus dies. And he calls us to follow him in it. I don't want to think about suffering. 
I don't want to think about suffering. I don't want to suffer. I whine about getting up early in the morning. (laughs) But all kidding aside, how I'm suffering is the hardest thing for me to talk about because it's embarrassing, because I'm ashamed of it, especially since all of you have it so together. What, is, what exactly is Jesus asking in telling me to die to myself? Listen to him. What exactly is Jesus asking me to do in dying to myself? When you're listening rather than just hearing Jesus, you wrestle with this question. And beloved, what does Jesus mean when he says die to yourself? It means listen to ourselves talk. It means truly confronting the voices in our heads, the competing voices or the ultimate voice that guides us. Listen, is it Jesus? Is it Jesus? It means asking and listening within myself to the answers to these kinds of questions. Where does my hope come from? Where does my hope come from? Where does my sense of approval come from? What is the source of my encouragement? What truly motivates me? What instructs me? Where am I learning from? Who am I learning from? Where do I look and find love? Where? And what defines love for me? If the answer to any of these questions is other people, any one person, or myself, I am worshiping a false God. I am already suffering and causing others to suffer because worship is only good. Worship is only true when it is given where it belongs. False worship leads to suffering and eventually destruction because it asks too much of someone or something that cannot give what is needed. And that includes ourselves. We live more and more in a world where we are encouraged to worship ourselves. And it sounds great, but it's one big fat lie. Because you can't give yourself what you really want. And so you live in this place where either you are ashamed and guilty and beating yourself up for what you cannot provide for yourself, what you cannot be, or you're continually pumping yourself up, trying harder, If I just worship myself a little bit better, if I just take care of me a little bit more, if I just do a little bit more for me, and you suffer, and you make other people around you suffer because you're not really happy. You're generally pissed off all the time. False worship is asking too much of someone or something that can't give us what is needed, including ourselves, and why it ultimately causes suffering is because we burn them out or ourselves with our neediness. Dying to ourselves means dying to these false gods. It means dying to our false beliefs. It means dying to any other voice shaping or commanding our lives apart from or before Jesus. Please let me pause here. I'm not saying that other people shouldn't be speaking into your life or you shouldn't be speaking into your life. What I'm saying is, it's a false God 
if that voice is shaping or commanding your life apart from or before Jesus. If it's Jesus, Jesus speaks through those people, not apart, and they don't speak before he does. And you know, you may get get into all kinds of, well, how do I know? You know. You know. Let's cut the crap. And I'm sorry, but really, if you really carve out that intentional space in that place, you know. It's not a question of not knowing. It's a question of whether you want to listen. And it's hard. (laughs) It's hard to listen. Because sometimes... Jesus calls us to suffer and die with him. And I don't like to lose. I'm a sore loser. I am a sore loser. I don't feel completely comfortable being weak. I've shared this with you. I still have the heebie-jeebies about what I preached two weeks ago. And you don't need to stroke me, and you don't tell me how great it was, because it's just going to make me feel worse. I'm working it out with the Lord. I'm being honest. I don't like to lose. I don't like feeling weak. I'm not comfortable there. And yet at the same time, gosh darn it, it is completely freeing when I lose and when I am weak. It really is good news that the heart of the gospel is a God who loves us enough to suffer. It really is good news that the heart of the gospel is a God who loves us enough to suffer, who loves every bit of life, who draws all of it, all of us into his divine heart. My friends, suffering means that we're in life. It means we're willing to undergo life. It means we're choosing to care. It means we're daring to love. And it's so interesting to me how intimately connected suffering and love are. Rabbi Harold Kushner once wrote these words. To rid the world of suffering, people would have to learn not to care. To rid the world of suffering, people would have to learn not to care. The only way I can avoid that kind of suffering is by not running the risk of love. God, he writes, wants to give us the capacity to live bravely in a world full of pain. That's the cost of discipleship. God wants to give us the capacity to live bravely in a world of pain. But I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry, I know I'm ranting. I don't enjoy failure. I don't enjoy failure. I don't enjoy face plants. I don't enjoy my fly being open, my shirt being untucked, my hair being out of sync, mispronouncing words, saying the wrong thing, forgetting someone's name. I don't like failure. (laughs) And yet, I've learned infinitely more about the closeness of my father. I've grown most in my appreciation of the love of Jesus. I've deepened in my awareness and access to the authority and power of the Holy Spirit's presence in my life through my biggest setbacks, my greatest mistakes, my unwanted failures. Because it's in my lowest, weakest, and most vulnerable moments I come to understand, I don't just hear it, I come to understand that death is not final. It's in my lowest, weakest, and most vulnerable moments, I don't just hear, I actually begin to believe the truth of the resurrection. 
And that happens, beloved. It happens not when my sense of self, as I define it, or as others try to define it, it's not when my sense of self is on life support. This doesn't happen when my sense of self, as I define it or others define it, is on life support. It happens when my sense of self, as I define it and as others define it, flatlines. When I finally die to myself and let Jesus raise me from the dead. If we trust that God is in the worst, then we hold on to the possibility that God is in the best. It doesn't work the other way. Seeing God only in the good. And for many of us, that's how we're wired. That's the theology we're working, and that's why it's not working for us. Because if you try to work it the other way, you only see God in the good, and we talk about how we're blessed, we talk about favor, we talk about all the great stuff. If we only see God in the good, then what do you do with the other stuff? Well, what do we do with the other stuff? If I could lift this rug, I'd put it under there. If we trust that God is in the worst, then we hold to the possibility that God is in the best because it doesn't work the other way. No, if God is in the suffering, then God is in the healing. If God is in the defeat, then God is in the victory. If God is in the tragedy, then God is in the joy. If God is in death, then God is in life. If God is on the cross, then God is beyond the tomb that is empty. Are we hearing? Are we listening to Jesus in the midst of the worst that's going on in our lives right now? Are we listening to Jesus in the midst of the worst, in the throes of our suffering? Are we listening to Jesus from his willingly chosen place on the cross? Listening to Jesus is not just believing what we're told by Jesus. Listening to Jesus is responding to his invitation and challenge to live out the truth of what he's telling us, sharing with us, showing us in our lives. Beloved, everything Jesus says or does reveals God's presence among us. Every healing, every miracle, every parable, every saying, every word of unconditional forgiveness, every love of act of loving sacrifice, every moment of glorious redemption, no matter how big or small, unveils Jesus at work in, around, and through us. If God is real, if Jesus lives, if the Holy Spirit is within us, we don't just know or believe. We listen. We experience. We interact with. We engage. We learn from. We converse with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the fabric of our lives. And it's in the listening and the responding to what God has done, what God is doing through Jesus in our lives and in this world, that God provides us with the capacity to live bravely in a world full of pain. Because he speaks to us not only of the cross and suffering, but in moments like these, on mountains like these, he gives us glimpses of the future glory that awaits us on the other side of our suffering. One day, 
I don't know when it will be for you or for me. Only God knows that. But one day, before an empty tomb, everything will become clear. One day, as we breathe our last breath, these same words will lead us unto salvation by these same words that we've learned and practiced listening to all our lives, Jesus will call us home. Amen. By way of transition, before we go to the offering, one of the things that we thought uh, might be helpful in this journey of discipleship, the cost of discipleship listening, is to share with the community uh, different places where we are living this out, where people that you know, maybe people that you don't, are really wrestling with listening to what Jesus is saying, and at the same time being honest that, it's, that there's a cost to discipleship. And, and how do you engage the cost at the same time with the freedom that comes in listening and responding to what Jesus is saying? So in the next couple of weeks throughout Lent, you're going to see a, a different video each week. It may be someone you know, it may be someone you've never seen before. And they're, they're just pockets. There's way more stories within our community of where people are wrestling with this. And we hope that it stimulates you. It's an encouragement for you. Uh, one of the things you'll notice, I think, over the next couple of weeks is that we try to get away from sharing examples that are just programs within grace. Because honestly, the reach of grace are not the programs. It's you. It's the things that you're doing, that God's doing through you in your life. So I'm really hoping you're going to not just see things that you could, how can I sign up for that at grace? But it's more of your, how can I join that person in their life with how they're following Jesus? So the first one's on the screen, and before it comes on, You'll, you'll all know, <laughs> recognize who it is, and they're both in the midst of living out that call and that cost. So as you watch, I also encourage you to be praying for them. Keep your eyes on.